If you would, turn in your Bibles or in the bulletin to our scripture passage uh, for today. 1 John 5, uh, we'll read from 1 through 13 and focus primarily on 6 through 12. Let's go to God's to God in prayer once again. Our Father, you created the world and indeed the whole universe by the word of your mouth. Uh, You speak, and that which you speak happens. So may your working word have its intended effect here this morning. May we hear your testimony about your Son. Affect the faith in us that we may rightly believe you. Loosen the grip of deception that we may let go of autonomy, doing whatever is right in our own eyes. And may your word be as it is to us, the very mind of God. And by it will you enact the renewal of our minds that we might rightly believe in you and know all that you would have us to do. We pray that you would accomplish these things by the power of your Spirit and for the name of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth. In his name we ask. Amen. Let's stand once again for the reading of God's holy Inerrant and inspired word, 1 John 5, 1 through 13. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he bore concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. Uh, last time, last week, last week, we talked about 1 Samuel, but we, last time in 1 John, uh, we talked about the source of our belief, that the, the new birth results in faith, that we're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we believe in Jesus as the Son of God. 
see in the, in the last two verses of that first section, uh, 1 through 5, and in verses 4 and 5, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So it's, it's John is talking about faith in this section of 1 John. And so last time was the grounds, and this time uh, we, we have the content of our faith exposited for us. Uh, the, the content and the implications of our faith. Uh, we get a sense of the main message of our passage in verses 11 and 12, that, that God gave us as believers eternal life, and this life is only through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that God himself is testifying to this fact. We get a sense of, of the issue at hand, why John is talking about this, I think in verse 9, when he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. This is the question. When we listen to men, will we listen to God? There's, there's a legal element here in this word testimony. Uh, we... We will listen to the testimony of a person on the witness stand and we'll listen carefully. And if all of the testimonies of all of the witnesses line up, we'll, we'll feel comfortable drawing conclusions. John's audience here seems to be caught between two competing testimonies. The false Gnostic teaching about Jesus on the one hand and the apostles teaching and their testimony about Jesus on the other hand. And so, really, they're having a hard time. They're questioning, how can we render a verdict between these two testimonies? And John has a suggestion. Why not listen to the testimony of God? And this is something we all go through as well. Um, there are many competing and weighty authorities speaking testimonies about truth or supposed truth. But at the end of the day, it's, it is God's testimony our ultimate authority? Or is it a subordinate authority? Is, is it the authority to rule all authorities? Is it the norm to norm the norms? Will we listen to God? So we'll begin here by looking at God's testimony uh, with three questions. Who, how, and what? Who, how, and what? And then we'll look at the implications of that testimony. So first, who? Who is God testifying about? The center of this whole thing is, is the person of Jesus. This controversial historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And while the false teachers will want to affirm certain things about Jesus, they'll also always want to try to edge away from Jesus. But for John and for God, Jesus is the whole thing. He's the whole question. Verse 6, this is he who came. The Son of God from verse 5 is he who came, the one who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. So this is the center of the whole issue here for John revolves around this single historical person, a man named Jesus from Nazareth. This is the one, he says, who came, and he came by water and the blood. This is the one who is the Son of God. He's the one about whom God is testifying, and he's the one in whom we have eternal life. Um, we, we, this, this reminds us of, of John um, chapter 1, when, when 
John reports that in 9 through 11, that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming. So we're talking about the coming, the entrance of the Messiah, the divine entrance into the world. He was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. So the question who, Jesus is the who. Jesus is always the who. That's the Sunday school answer, right kids? Who? Jesus. Whatever debates we're caught up in, if we've lost sight of Jesus as Nazareth, as the central figure, the point of the plot, the, the axis around which history turns, we have become distracted. And however lofty or beautiful, however compelling the testimony of men may be, if it does not center on the person and work of Christ, it is not the testimony of God. So the who is Jesus, the how. How has God testified about him? Um, Through this threefold witness that, that converges on a central testimony. First we see two of them. Uh, He has testified by the water and the blood in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Uh, This is a head scratcher. What is the water and the blood? Um, And there have been many, many interpreters have suggested many things. Um, Water and blood is present at birth and maybe an incarnational image, uh, maybe talking about Old Testament purification laws, uh, maybe water in the blood that spilled from the side of Jesus on the cross, uh, maybe the baptism in the Lord's Supper, which is sort of close, but also quite dangerous. Um, but the most common view, and I think the one that makes the most sense to me, um, though I wouldn't die on this hill is that the water represents Jesus' baptism and his blood represents the blood of of atonement, the cross of the baptism of Jesus and the his atoning death. So negatively, and as we see this in, in, in John's parenthetical statement here, it's not the water only, but the water and the blood. There's a negative element here. He may be addressing something like, if not the very teaching itself of a person we've talked about before, Serenthus, or, or something like what he believed, um, this dualistic Gnostic idea um, that Jesus was a natural-born person from Joseph and Mary, and then at Jesus' baptism, the, the Christ or the divine personage descended on this person, Jesus. And then, then it left right before Jesus' death. That was the teaching at the time of, of Serenthus. And it seems like John may be dealing with something like that. But John calls Jesus here, he calls him Jesus Christ. Because for him, the two are inseparable. It's not as though Jesus existed and then the Christ descended on him to make known the unknown Father. For him, Jesus, the person, is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And he affirms in one sense, yes, he did come by water, but not in the way Serenthus or those folks think, uh, as is plain in John's Gospel. But the idea that Jesus came 
here as the Christ, as our Savior. So it's not just the talking about incarnation, but it's how did Jesus come as our Savior. And this, this coming is confirmed uh, and is sort of the frontmost bracket of Jesus' ministry uh, at his baptism. In the baptism, Jesus, his baptism, he was identified with us, with his people. He, he of course, was not sin, sinful, and yet he went to John and he underwent this baptism of repentance and cleansing, but not as one who, who needed to bear, to be cleansed from his own sins, but as one who would be bear the sins of his people, be cleansed for the sins of his people. Representatively, he underwent the baptism of repentance. Immediately after which, he comes up out of the water, and we, we, we read in Matthew 3, uh, 16 and 17, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We have the direct quote from God at his baptism that this is the Son of God. But, John says, it's not the water only, but the water and the blood. It's important to understand that here, that God is, is just not just testifying about that Jesus is fully divine or that he's truly human, um, but he's testifying, again, everything about Jesus, particularly about him as he relates to our redemption. How did he come to save us? And nothing testifies to the truth of Jesus coming as our Savior than the blood of Jesus. The idea that, that Jesus could be just a human with a divine essence that, that left at his, his death is just anathema to the gospel. But the blood poured out for us as a propitiation for our sins, this, this is truly the Son of God coming for us. And the, the centurion at the foot of the cross, a cross he may have helped lift up from the ground, saw this in, in Mark fifteen thirty nine, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So if Jesus did not come as our Savior by the blood, he did not come as our Savior at all. John adds a third witness here, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Um, 6b, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three Agree, or literally, these three are one, is what the text says. These three witnesses are are unified into a single testimony. The Spirit, he says, is the truth. He's not just a witness to the truth, like somebody who saw something happen and, and is able to convey the facts. The Spirit is the truth. Everything he testifies is true because he is truth in his essence. He testifies, the Spirit testifies in numerous ways to Jesus as the saving Son of God, um, not least of which is his presence at the baptism of Jesus. 
Um, he was the one also by whom the spirit or the, the apostles initially preached the gospel. We saw that as we went through Acts recently um, through people. He did the spirit did signs and wonders testifying about Jesus. And of course, the spirit inspired for us recorded scripture. So the spirit testifies in many ways. Um, but I think what he's getting at here is, is another way in that um, Jesus says he will bear witness. The spirit will bear witness about me in John. He's speaking of an ongoing witness in the church. I think John is referring to uh, the more internal witness of the Holy Spirit or what he's previously called in First John, the anointing of the spirit. Um, Robert Yarborough comments here. He says, for John, the spirit is not an impersonal it force. He is rather the virtual presence of Christus in absentia. In the absence of Christ, he's the presence of Christ. Jesus' disciples know this spirit of truth because after Jesus' resurrection, he lives with them and will be in them. As we read in John 14. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then in 15, in the same discourse in John 15, 26. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the spirit, the witness bearing, the testifying, the spirit is testifying. The spirit testifies, bringing to life the revelation of God in our own souls. In other words, without, without the Holy Spirit, there's no point in John revealing or God revealing himself to us. There's no point in, in Jesus coming in the water and the blood. Um, John Owen said, Without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. There's no point to the Bible unless the Spirit applies the truth to our hearts. and We, we can't understand it. So he's testifying. The Spirit is testifying. Without the Spirit, the water and the blood mean nothing to us because while Jesus may have been baptized into his people, we have not been baptized into him. While Jesus may have spilled his blood to save sinners, that blood has not been applied to our sins. But behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We, we have been born again into a new family, a, the family of the Father for whom the water and the blood came. Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit testifies. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 29 asks, How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. And 39 asks, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? 
The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So there's that ongoing internal witness testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the saving Son of God. So that's the, the what is Jesus, the how is through the water, the blood and the Spirit. And now, before we get to the what, I want to take a brief uh, excursus here um, and talk about a, a somewhat important and relevant textual matter um, that's in this section of Scripture. We've talked a little bit from time to time about this concept of textual criticism, and I'm not going to do a deep dive here. However, this is one of the really the three big texts that this topic becomes really relevant um, for us and comes to the forefront. So, by textual criticism, I mean the art and science of determining the original text of Scripture. We, we do not have the original manuscripts of the Bible, uh, which we, we, our confessions affirm that that's, that's what we believe is inerrant, is the original autographs of the Bible. We have copies of those manuscripts, but as Daniel Wallace says, uh, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the amount of textual evidence we have for the Bible far and away past all other ancient documents, uh, we have a richness of manuscript evidence. Um, so all that to say that, that God is preserving his word. And in, in this text, we have kind of a larger variant, a different between, difference between manuscripts um, so if you have the King James or the New King James, you you might you'll have this this these words in your Bible, um, hopefully with a note. But in verses seven and eight, it, the King James reads, "For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one." So this is a famous uh, textual variant. It's often called the Johannine comma, comma meaning clause. Um, and with near unanimity, it is agreed that this is a, a late addition in the manuscript tradition. Um, in brief, those, those words are not found in any Greek manuscripts in that form until the 14th century. And likely they were inserted actually into the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century when someone allegorized the spirit and the water and the blood to be a Trinitarian reference and then they, they put it in the, in, in the version of the Latin Vulgate. Um, also, these, these words were never quoted by the, the fathers, the ancient Greek fathers who were embroiled in, in Trinitarian controversy. And these really would have been a helpful verse if, if, if they had had this text there. Um, also, it's pretty clear that when Erasmus, who, who compiled the Greek New Testament, um, and he didn't have this in his first two editions, but he did in his third, probably due to pressure from the Roman Catholic Church to uphold the, the Vulgate. Um, and and this, this text is eventually what was influenced the text that became the, the King James Version. So all of this to say, I bring this up for a few reasons. First of all, some of you might have the King James or the New King James, and you might have noticed, well, I skipped a section. Um, I'm not trying to 
take out any scissors on the Bible. Um, also, I find textual criticism interesting. It's interesting history, but also it's about the reliability of the Bible that, that has come down to us, the reliability of God's word. And textual criticism, this topic, always reminds me of God's promise to preserve his word, which is sort of delightfully ironic because this text is specifically about the testimony of God. So because of all the ways that God has revealed himself, the Bible is the most plain and the most comprehensive. God, God has he's promised that though the grass may wither and the flower fade, the word of the Lord will stand forever. And he, he's proving that out. So we have the testimony of God in, in a reliable, and I would say increasingly reliable format in our Bibles, right in our hands this morning. And this contains everything that we could possibly need for faith and godliness in this life. That, what a rich blessing that is. So um, with that in mind, I'll return to the, the questions at hand. So we have the, the who, the, the how, and now the what. What is God testifying about Jesus? Uh, we, we've already summarized it, that Jesus is the Son of God sent to give us eternal life in himself. In verse 11, and this is the testimony, I think there should be a colon there, that God gave us his eternal life, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And the second part there defines the first. It's not just that God gave us eternal life. False teachers could agree and define that statement in their own terms. But John wants to be very explicit here. The means by which eternal life is given is through the Son and through the Son alone. So there's, there's no limping between Jesus as the Son of God made man for us and Jesus, man, joined temporarily with God to, to reveal the unknown father. You can't go back and forth between those two ideas. How many people do we know that are, are limping between Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, and some fabrication of Jesus? I, I have people in my circle that are more than happy to include him in their religious belief, but do not see him as the exclusive, saving Son of God sent to to give us eternal life through the vicarious spilling of his blood. And of course, we all know people for whom this confession, though they say it, is more of an insipid profession, lacking any concrete expression. But, but John is insistent that, that it is our faith, this very faith in this testimony, that overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our, our faith. So that's the what, that Jesus is the, the, the eternal Son of God come to, to spill his blood for us, that he might bring us eternal life. And there's implications, I have three implications of God's testimony. Um, and the first implication is that there is one ultimate source 
one ultimate source. As a student right now, I'm in a class about doing research. If you want all of the, the details about research, you can talk to me afterwards. It's very exciting. <laughs> one of the things we're talking about is this idea of authority. Some sources are more authoritative than others. Uh, we, we uh, by which I mean not me, but humans, have recently sent a spacecraft to an asteroid, collected a chunk of it, and brought it back. It's extraordinary. And scientists right now are studying that chunk of an asteroid. And, and they're going to write papers about this asteroid. And those scientists who write those papers, and those papers have far more authority than the news sources who report on those papers. We, we have authorities in our lives, things we look to, people we look to. I put a lot of weight on the, the Westminster Confession or the, the Reformers um, as authorities or people in our own day, ministers who, who are very near the Bible and I think they, they know what the Bible's about. They have a, a weight, an authority to them. And that's a good thing to have these authorities because if we don't, then we're just going on our own and we're our own authority. But of course, the point here is that God and God's word is the highest possible authority. It is the authority that rules all authorities because the word of God is infallible. That means not only that it's not wrong, but it, it can't be wrong. I believe what, he, what, what he's getting at here is the weightiness of the testimony of God. Again, in verse 9, if, if we receive the testimony of men, we do, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God. Uh, I think that's referring to the water, the spirit, and the blood. That he is born concerning his son. Some, some may object, I think, that the only way we know anything about Jesus, about the, the water and the blood, is through the, the Bible. And isn't that the testimony of men? But John and, and the other apostles are never bashful about the idea that their testimony is the testimony of God. The Bible is the testimony of God, born concerning his son. First John 4, uh, 5-6, John had said, They, those teachers, are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He, he's not at all bashful to say, this testimony that I'm preaching is God's testimony. Same in Second Peter 1, 19 and 21. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And of course, very familiar, Second Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
fully equipped for every good work. The, the, the three witnesses, the water, the spirit, uh, the blood, they converge. They are one. They, they converge in one place in the Bible. And the truths of the Bible applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, is the testimony of God. This is the ultimate authority. The, the ultimate primary source. John goes on then to, to uh, draw another um, implication, a rather exclusive um, conclusion. There's one source, there's also one way. One source, one way. Uh, John, John, he's a little black and white guy. I think he had a black and white personality. He's drawing these lines. But it's not just that he had a black and white personality. What we do with Jesus of Nazareth is a black and white issue. There's no neutrality there. So he divides people into two camps. Verse 10, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So the people who believe have the testimony. They have the testimony in themselves. They're one in the same group. It's another one of John's Unhelpful Venn diagrams, a single circle. Faith in Jesus, as he has been testified to by God, as the saving Son of God, sent to bring us eternal life, that faith indicates that the testimony has already taken up residence in our hearts. But the one who does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John says he, does, he doesn't believe the testimony to, to the effect that he's calling God a liar. John knows nothing of this idea that there are multiple ways to God. For him, if you believe in Jesus, you believe the testimony of God. If you do not believe in Jesus, you call a God a liar, and your testimony, what you say and what you think, is at odds with the divine testimony. So it's very exclusive. There's one way through Jesus Christ. Third implication is that there's one confidence. One confidence. Notice the, the testimony here is very personal. This testimony is explicitly about us. He says in verse 11 that the testimony is that God gave us eternal life in his Son. There's a strong implicit call here to, to, to believe in Jesus, but that's never been John's purpose in First John. That was his purpose in the Gospel of John. In chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, he says, These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing has life in his name. The Gospel of John is an evangelistic book. First John is a book of assurance to us. So his purpose in this letter can be summed up in reading verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. People find all kinds of ways to, 
supply themselves with confidence that they have eternal life. They're, they're somehow heirs of eternal life anyway. I'm not so bad, maybe, or I'm well-intentioned, or I've, I've discovered spiritual enlightenment, or I've had a spiritual experience, or, or uh, I'm a son of Abraham, or I do all the, the, the things, the rituals. But there's one simple question we need to ask ourselves. Do I have the Son? Are we united to the Son by laying hold of Him by faith? Uh, verse 12 has been my personal go-to starting place for the question of assurance for a, a long time now. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's, it's so simple and straightforward. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't, you don't. The comfort is whatever foolish things you have done, whatever alternative lies and re redefinitions from the world are assailing you and oppressing you, however weak or strong your faith, if you believe the testimony of God, if you have the Son by faith, you have eternal life. And if you don't, you don't. In the book of Acts, we see this picture in my mind of the, the great river of redemptive history splitting. And, and the Jews go one way and Christians go another way. One way leads to life and the other leads to death. And at the center of that fork stands the cross of Jesus Christ. So what you choose, what you believe about Jesus determines which way you're going to paddle your boat. The same is true for the people who John is writing to. Is Jesus some kind of apparition? Is he just a man and dwelt by the divine personage for a time? Or is he God incarnate? Made man, like as we are, yet without sin, that he might be identified with his people on their behalf and die for them. You have to choose. There's no middle ground. There's no third way with Jesus. And John here, he echoes the, the writer to the Hebrews in uh, Hebrews 6, 9. Uh, after the writer issues one of the more difficult warnings about, to, about, about departing, leaving Jesus, he then says to the people, Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That's what John's saying here. Is God has promised to give us eternal life in his Son, Jesus Christ. So if you have the Son, you have life. It's pure, it's simple, straightforward. We always long for formulas and, and formulas can't account for the complexities of human experience, but here's one, I think, that you, you can't scrap it. It's straightforward. If then, if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't, then you don't. In one sense, of course, this is the, the very most basic Christian message. Believe God, believe in the saving blood of Christ, and enjoy eternal life.
But in another sense, this very basic message is the battle of the Christian life. When Peter says the, the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, what, what, what if not our faith is he seeking to devour? He would love it if we were just great people that did not believe in Jesus. Luther says, It is the whole function of our preaching to establish this testimony concerning the Son of God in the hearts of men. So, beloved, if you will believe the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. If you have the Son of God, you have life. Praise God.